This is Jennifer Gonzalez welcoming you to episode 62 of the Cult of Pedagogy podcast. In this episode, we're going to talk to three teachers who have created an incredible model for cross-curricular student-directed learning. They call it the Apollo School. I feel like we've reached a point where most teachers embrace the idea of student-directed learning, the philosophy of being the guide on the side rather than the sage on the stage. We can also appreciate the value of cross-curricular studies, blending math and science, for example, or integrating arts and music into history class. So why are so many teachers still basically using the old model? where we plan and deliver the lessons in separate subjects in lockstep using the same traditional schedule as always. Two reasons, I think. One, because it works, more or less. We move students through the system, they learn some stuff, pass tests, and graduate with an acceptable repertoire of knowledge and skills. Acceptable. Enough to function, to continue on to college and survive, more or less. Except that lately, more and more voices are telling us that this repertoire of knowledge and skills isn't quite cutting it. They aren't quite as adept at problem solving and collaboration and inquiry as they need to be for the 21st century. The other reason we stick to the traditional framework is the one I believe is more powerful. It's because we don't know how to change. We have no template for what school could look like if we restructured it to reflect priorities like cross-curricular connections, student self-efficacy, and inquiry-based learning. Well, I have a template for you today. The Apollo School is a program that operates inside a regular public school, Central York High School in York, Pennsylvania, which just happens to be right down the street from where I did my student teaching in 1993. Apollo is a block of three classes. English, social studies, and art, all blended together and co-taught by three teachers, one from each subject area. Students arrive in the morning and set their own goals for the day based on whatever project they happen to be working on at the time. Projects are developed cooperatively by the student and his or her teachers, and each project is aligned with standards in all three subject areas. Students schedule one-on-one -on -one time with the teachers as needed, and teachers teach mini-lessons that students can sign up for. These lessons are not mandatory. Students only sign up for them if they fit with the goals of their current project or if they have a high interest in the subject. At the end of the Apollo block, students then resume a regular schedule for the rest of the school day. While you listen to these teachers describe how their program works, think about how you might be able to apply this structure within your school. Maybe not this exact model, but something like it. Could you combine two class periods into one and join forces with another teacher? Could you offer formally delivered lessons as an option, but also allow students to work independently if their current project demands it? Could you make these kinds of shifts towards being more of a true guide on the side? Before we get into the interview, I'm going to tell you where to find Apollo online in case you want to explore the program while listening or you want to look at it before you finish the episode. Their address is the Apollo School, all one word, dot weebly.com. There you'll find a description of the program, get links to student projects, and learn a little more about the teachers and how they run the program. 
Okay, two things before we get started. First, I'd like to thank Kidum for sponsoring this episode. Kidum is a free platform that helps you personalize learning for every student. A lot of teachers love the idea of personalized learning, but without the right tools, it's still just a buzzword. With Kidum, teachers gain access to an unlimited library of standards-aligned content coupled with beautiful, actionable reports to see exactly which standards need more work and which students need more help. To learn more, visit cultofpedagogy.com slash Kidum, K-I-D-D-O-M. I also want to thank you for the reviews you've left for this podcast on iTunes. Reviews really help raise the visibility of a podcast, which brings more listeners in and gets these ideas into more classrooms. If you think more teachers need to be listening to this podcast, head over to iTunes, search for the Cult of Pedagogy podcast, click on ratings and reviews, then leave a review and tell me what you think. Thanks so much. Now, here is my interview with Wes Ward, Jim Grandy, and Greg Wimmer the facilitators at the Apollo School. I should explain that we're coming in a few minutes into the interview. I hit record a few minutes too late. <laughs> so what you'll hear first is Wes Ward, who was Apollo's English teacher, describing their first failed attempt at starting the program. It was called Modern American Perspectives, and we were planning on incorporating like a little bit of literature and then some history to balance that out and to teach the class in a double period or a double block keeping those same kids for two blocks in a row. And during that time, they would have both an English teacher and a social studies teacher floating around. Um, the, the principal gave the go-ahead. We included it in the course selection guide, and then like five or six students showed interest in it. So it never ran. In the, mean, in the meantime, Jim Grandy, who teaches down the hall from us, and who I had worked with previously at a different school district, um, jumped in the mix and said, well, what if you offered the same kind of course but included art as well? Maybe it could draw more of an interest from uh, the artistic kids of the school, <clears throat> which uh, we'd always been open to working uh, inter interdisciplinary uh, anyway. It didn't matter how far we expanded out or how tight we made it. So with that, we went back to the drawing board and, and drew up a course description and asked our principal if we could do three blocks, not just two, and incorporate all three classes. And we didn't think he'd say yes, but he did. <clears throat> and um, <clears throat> we uh, spoke at an assembly toward the end of the year after the course courses were already picked for the next year, the master schedule was already built. And we had like this emergency meeting for the rising 11th and 12th graders the following fall. And um, we said, hey, this is a course that we're trying to offer. We need some kids to sign up for it. And we had about 70 uh, students who showed interest, which after that summer when they logistically figured out the scheduling and some of those students who were interested became not as interested, they dropped off the radar, and then we were left with about 40 our first year. And that's that's how it all began. Okay. And tell me a little bit about what you were, what what made you kind of, I guess, get get restless with what you were already doing before and make you really want to do, do try things this way. Well, I know, this is Wes again, I know from my perspective in English class, every time I would teach 
piece of literature, I'd find myself talking about history. And I mm -hmm. thought, how convenient would this be and really beneficial to the students if they would have a history buff in the form of a social studies teacher here to bounce ideas off of and to really challenge and push the kids to dig up more context of the poetry or the stories or even the articles we were reading. And, right. and I, I know Greg felt the same way as far as history went as well. And I knew he'd be uh, open-minded to um, crossover subject areas and just have both of us there at the same time. And then when Jim showed interest in joining forces, it was a no-brainer. When I was looking through some of your stuff, and this might have just been some emails that we had um, exchanged at some point, you were talking about this term I had never heard of called mass customized learning. Mm -hmm. And that one of you anyway had read a book called Inevitable. Mm -hmm. This may have come from Greg. I don't, I don't remember exactly. So can somebody talk a little bit about that concept of mass customized learning? Inevitable was a book um, Chuck Schwann and B. McGarvey wrote a few years ago. And it was basically about knocking down the walls of a typical classroom, um, almost literally, uh, so, so that we can get rid of this siloed idea of school where you go into one silo on the farm and then when the bell rings, you go into the next silo, and then the bell rings, and you move on to the next one. And it, you know, to carry out that metaphor a bit further, like why can't we just coexist on the same farm together and learn and share among each other without having to uh, segment ourselves up from the rest of the population? And so I wouldn't say their book really changed our mindset, but it kind of affirmed what we were already thinking that we wanted to do uh, as we grew bored and tired of, you know, an educational system that's over a hundred years old that was designed for a purpose back then, but that purpose isn't necessarily the only purpose now. Right. And so it became kind of like our motivator to push this as far as we could. And luckily our superintendent was a big proponent of the book, and he actually had his administrators read that book uh, before we saw it. And then the summer before we ran the pilot program of the course, we actually went to a conference in Western PA, Bedford PA, uh, where uh, B. McGarvey was a keynote speaker, um, and we got to meet her and talk to her about our ideas and what this Apollo program was going to look like. This was before it, it ever even uh, began. So the idea behind mass customized learning isn't just, uh, you know, project-based, um, you know, joining forces with other teachers in your building to do whatever you want. Mass customized mm -hmm. learning means, um, to use another metaphor, like, when you go to the doctor, if all, if all four of us went to the doctor right now and we each had different ailments, the doctor wouldn't stand up and give all of us the same prescription, the same dosage, the same way at the same time. Uh, he would treat us differently because we needed different things. And that's kind of the idea behind mass customized learning is why, why do we still have teachers writing a single lesson plan and standing up in front of an entire class and giving all of the students the same information at the same time in the same way when they all have different needs mm -hmm. and, and, and different interests? So with that, we decided um, 
that our threat of customized learning or mass customized learning would be to give students more of a choice and more of a voice in what they were doing. But the, we also maintain traditional teaching here at our high school as well outside of the Apollo program. There's teachers who prefer to teach in a traditional way and there's also students who prefer to learn in that traditional way as well. Um, we have some courses that run in a hybrid format where they may meet with the teacher for a little bit but then be working independently or working in groups and then they're meeting back with the teacher again. We have online courses where students check in once a week with their teacher but the rest of the work is done online. So mass customized learning isn't necessarily Apollo. Apollo is one spoke of that wheel. Oh, I got it. So the whole school is actually running on, right. on mass customized learning and you are one of the options. Yeah, our, our whole district has subscribed to that philosophy from uh, B. McGarvey and Chuck Schwann's book. Um, we just happened to have this idea at the perfect time and place and got to go ahead to run with it because the district was confident that it could fit into this bigger model. Got it. Got it. Okay. So that's, that's actually an interesting piece of this. Um, just so you know, Right as Wes started talking was when I'm using this new software and I realized I had never hit record. So oh. I missed a little bit of that logistical <laughs> stuff at the beginning, okay. uh, which is actually okay because I can just sort of summarize it in my intro. Uh, but I think it would be a good idea for us to introduce you guys one more time. The person I was talking to was Wes Ward. And Wes, tell us one more time what you actually teach in this program. Uh, I'm Wes Ward and I teach the English component okay. of Apollo. And then we've got Greg Wimmer. Hi, I'm Greg. I teach the social, social studies piece of the Apollo program. Okay, and then Jim Grandy. Hello, I'm Jim, and I teach the art component of the Apollo program. Fantastic. And I'll just I'll summarize some of the other stuff that we talked about in my intro so we don't have to re-record that. Sorry. So you said that there are not any special qualifications for getting into this, that a student basically just signs up for it and that's it. There's really no requirement. Obviously, we like to speak with the kids before they sign up just to give them an idea exactly what they're getting into because it is, it is a commitment of sorts. Mm -hmm. um, and, and once you're in it, it it's, you know, it's tough to get out of that um, in the thick of it. But we have students that have uh, IEPs, 504 plans. Uh, we have gifted students. We also have um, students from all backgrounds. Um, athletics, non-athletic from AP kids to kids that have never even taken an honors level course, let alone an AP course. Wow. So, but what we found is that all those labels don't necessarily subscribe to what you might think, uh, how they would perform. Most of the time, um, they're all over the map. And, and what I mean by that is even we have some GIP kids, the gifted students who struggle the most in, in our course. And it's not has nothing to do with intelligence. It just usually has to do with the fact that they traditionally are really good at being told what to do and executing that that you know that uh, that directive. And this is not like that. This is an opportunity for them to explore and research on their own, and, and they have to have a little bit of independence on that. And and some kids really struggle for that. So we don't really have a specific way to kind of target group kids to even find mm -hmm. them. Um, because there's students that, you know, we, we always have them that I'm like, wow, that, that kid just really surprised me and, and for good or bad. Um, so 
we don't have a specific way to target them just yet. So we we can't omit anybody. Um, right. We don't really, you know what I mean? Yep. Have you had troubles with uh, trouble with space up to this point in terms of not having like having to turn kids away basically because you're you're at cap? No, no, not at all. In fact, um, we're, we're ideally I think we'd like to be somewhere around forty five um, to fifty tops, but uh, it takes a lot of time to meet with each, each kid each day. Um, so anything more than that would be a lot. Um, I think that when you think of the traditional setting. And we all have colleagues that have students that might have 25 to 30, even sometimes 32 kids in a class or students in a class. Um, they don't understand how three of us can share 40 kids um, for three periods. But in reality, the amount of one-on-one -on -one time that we provide these students and, and the time it takes for them to build their projects and then you know execute them, it, it just takes a lot. So we're not really... We're advertising to get students involved, but it's not like we're kind of putting a big net out to catch as many as possible. We want to catch the right students who, who the program is right for, not necessarily right. quantity. It's more quality. Right, right. Mm -hmm. Do you all meet in one location for this whole morning program? Uh, yeah, we do. We meet in the morning at 745. We usually meet in Greg's room. Um, and luckily, all three of our rooms are in one wing. Um, there's a lot of art and then there's a lot of arts classes around this, around their rooms as well, including mm -hmm. myself. And then we have a student work area, which is kind of a center area where it's really open. Um, we have some furniture in there where, um, it, it promotes collaboration and or isolated work, depending on what the student needs at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, so w space isn't really an issue. We have one big kind of art room, which is more like a, um, maker space. Mm -hmm. For students who need that, uh, we have more, like we usually use Greg's room for more of a, kind of maybe small group meetings where are private and, and Wes's room is kind of near the end. And it's usually used for more of a quiet space for students who might be really, really needing just total isolation to, to either read or something like that. Right. Okay. So let's let's talk a little bit about what's actually required of these students in this semester in terms of. What, what do they have to get accomplished over the course of, of that semester? Go ahead, Greg. So when you break down Apollo, it, it actually um, turns out to be six grades in the grade book for each of us. And um, I'll talk specifically about the projects right now. Um, over the course of the semester, students um, build four independent projects. And... Those projects are connected to a set of themes that we developed. Um, the 11th grade themes revolve around an American element, and the seniors, the 12th graders, revolve around uh, what we call self in the modern world, kind of a introspection before they graduate and leave um, something that they've been accustomed to now for 12 or 13 years. And so... Um, those projects, the requirement within the projects is that they include an element of art, English, and social studies. And there's a lot of liberty that comes um, with that. You know, if we're talking about an American element, it can be anything from fashion in the 1920s um, to a culinary um, piece from the 1940s between Japan and America. And so 
so the students can can kind of run in in whatever direction they they want within some pretty loose bumpers. And so if you drill down each project then a little bit more, you're going to see that um, the students are going to tie each of their projects into thinking skills. And um, we use four thinking skills that guide their work, um, reasoning, perspective, contextualization, and synthesis. And so they have to determine how they're going to process the information within each of our areas. That sounds like a, a really big thing for a student to, to kind of sit back and, and analyze their thinking process. But that's one of like the hallmarks of Apollo is how can we get students to think about um, how they're processing information along the way and not just creating another product. Because I think in the past, students associate projects with products and um, it, gets, it gets mixed up along the way. And so um, the projects uh, go from there and, and ask students to also infuse some soft skills. And, and we had originally started off with eight soft skills that ranged in anything from empathy to leadership and time management. Um, but we soon realized that the two uh, soft skills that students really needed to work on was time management and communication. Um, and so I'll get, in, I'll get into those, or someone will get into those in a little bit. Um, but the, the projects themselves um, were really a way for students to understand that each of our subject areas don't work in an individual silo, that um, how we look at history can also include elements of design or, or literature or, um, or whatever they're investigating, haiku or um, romanticism. So it, it's really um, an opportunity for students to escape kind of that prescribed social studies path, English path, and art path. Students... Also, I'm going to, I'll go on with the projects just a little bit more. Students are also then required to link each of their projects to state and national standards. Uh, it was a discussion that we ended up having with, with students at the beginning of their projects that, um, you know, teachers have this kind of masked disguise of standards and the lessons that, that we teach have to be connected to these standards. But Jim, Wes, and I decided that we were going to give the standards over to them since you have 40 students running in 40 different directions. Um, they were the ones that needed to self-select the standards. Um, and so, you know, it's really genius to see them, you know, a week into their project, realize that they're hitting the wrong standards and then they, they go back and, and are able to change them and make the standards work for them. But, you know, it, it's, I think Jim attests to this pretty well. It's, it's a really smart way to align the, the quote-unquote instruction development with the assessment component of Apollo. I'd like to take a moment to thank our other sponsor, ListenWise. I absolutely love this site. It's an online collection of curated podcasts and public radio broadcasts aligned with science, social studies, and ELA curriculum, helping you connect what you're teaching in class to the real world. 
Each podcast is paired with listening comprehension questions and close listening activities. And with ListenWise Premium, you also get lesson plans, vocabulary lists, and automatically scored comprehension quizzes, which track student progress on different components of listening, such as identifying the main idea, inferencing, and point of view. To learn more, visit listenwise.com. And to find out how well your students can listen and comprehend rigorous content, try ListenWise's free listening comprehension quiz at listenwise.com slash listening underscore challenge. Now back to our interview. Let's um, let's take a look at an example. I was going to have you walk me through a typical week, uh, but I think let's hold off on that first so that we can dig into these because I think it would help me understand better and probably the person listening to look at a typical project of a student's and, and see where those thinking skills and soft skills get woven in and how they link those to the standards. Can you think of something that students have done in the past that would be a good example? You want to take this one, Wes? Sure. We just had a, a student this past semester who came to us just for her senior year. She hadn't taken Apollo as, Apollo as a junior. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was right at the top of her class, um, straight A's, uh, and she had basically mastered school. Uh, more of a science-minded student as well. Mm-hmm. So taking, taking an art, English, and social studies class combined was new to her and um, something that she was a little apprehensive about, but she made herself do it because she knew it was her last shot as a senior. So for one of her projects, and I think she would tell you it's the one she's most proud of, she uh, calls herself a test tube baby, uh, as she was. Um, hmm. Her, Yeah, she was uh, born uh, as a twin. She has a twin brother here at the school as well. And... Um, a test tube was was used uh, for fertilization purposes, and it's something that's always fascinated her about herself, but she's never really had the curriculum available to explore that in her biology classes. So she decided to select that as her topic and try to weave in um, art, English, and social studies somehow. So uh, the first thing she did was she researched the heck out of um, in vitro fertilization and test hmm. tube babies. and and developed this uh, digital mind map through uh, probably a website that Greg steered her towards. And just every time you turned around, another button was clicked to open up a passageway to more information, and then you would click a link there, which opened up into more. And uh, it was just an exhaustive uh, display of research in the world of uh, science and fertilization in general. So she did that for Greg um, and for art she decided to uh, do a painting except um, instead of using brushes she actually used test tubes Hmm. Um, so so that was her utensil and so she would dip that into the paint and uh, she painted an abstract piece using that Hmm. in the meantime she had uh, reached out into the community and um, had talked to a fertilization specialist. Um, guys, if there's a better word for or a title for that lady, let me know. But I believe that's how she referred to her. But, yeah, she, she went to a clinic in downtown York and, and talked to them. And weeks later, after the project had come to fruition and, and they found out about her painting, I think there's been talks of her taking the painting there to, to hang up in their lobby. Oh, wow. Um, 
it's, it's still on display here, so that hasn't happened yet, but I know that's part of her plan. She also did another art piece, which she didn't have to do, but um, she's a go-getter like that. And she um, did a 3D sculpture made out of copper uh, hmm. that, that she cut and uh, soldered together herself. And from this, um, it was a pyramid shaped with different tiers to it. And the, um, the tiers were supposed to uh, reflect a different caste system. This was also part of an art and social studies and English part of the project as well, by the way, because she was reading, for me, Brave New World. Okay. And from these different levels in this, this caste system uh, on this three-dimensional pyramid, she hung test tubes. She suspended them with string. And she, she included different things inside of the test tubes, including, like, artifacts from her childhood. I know one thing she stuffed inside one of the test tubes was a, a part of a scarf, a piece of a scarf or a hat that her grandmother had stitched for her. Um, another one contained um, some vitamins that she has to take on a daily basis um, because of health issues possibly related to being a test tube baby. Hmm. So a lot of different personal connections, but also real-world connections, too. And then for me, she read the novel Brave New World over the course of a few weeks. Mm -hmm. She found an online study guide, 20 pages worth, printed that out, completed that on her own. And what we have the students do upon completing a project is they then come to us, and it's, it's kind of like defending a thesis of sorts. The three of us sit at a table, and the students come in, as Emma did, and she presented her findings from Brave New World and the study guide that she completed in both of her art pieces along with her digital uh, mind map. And she defended it and explained it and connected it all, and it was awesome. So I'm listening to this, and I'm, my mind is going, first of all, it sounds it sounds like a pretty incredible uh, project and so personalized, which is, is really nice. It, the piece I'm trying to think for my listeners now, and I'm thinking yeah. they're they're wondering right now about the social studies piece of this and where mm -hmm. the social studies standards came into play. Um, well, speaking to that specific project, it would obviously come more under the guise of social sciences. But one of the great parts of Apollo is that we have time, and so. Um, that includes a lot of individualized time with students, um, pretty much a one-on-one -on -one discussion. And so I know that this student and I had sat down on numerous occasions to talk about bioethics mm -hmm. and, and how can these um, decisions made on, on the behalf of all parties involved be justified in, in a test tube environment and and beyond in, in a more medical sense as well. And so um, obviously that contributed to, to her work. Um, and then it also then tied into her um, presentation in her, in her mind map that she had created. I mean, the mind map was, was beyond a, a level that I would ever expect mm -hmm. um, just because it didn't include just research. Mm -hmm. She did individualized family research and interviews, and she incorporated um, facts and information about fertilization that layered in with her family's answers. Mm -hmm. 
And so it, it was a, a true uh, synthesis and fusion of ideas with personal interpretation. As a, as a teacher in Apollo, I think one thing we're, we're all really good at is being able to look beyond just the typical hard standards mm -hmm. that, that the state requires. Um, and so it's, it is being able to see not just this for that and that for this. Right. It's being able to al allow students the opportunity to push beyond those. Right. And then if we truly do have a question about a standard, we'll ask the student or have a conversation with the student about their justification. But, yeah, it's about the, these liberties that we have and, and how we connect them is, is really up to the student. Is there ever a point where you sort of, I mean, you've got an entire semester to cover a certain body of standards. So if one student's single project doesn't quite get to a certain section or maybe it leans more toward, you know, two of the three focus areas and it's a little light on one of them, would that come into play then in their next project that they would think, okay, I've got to, got to go a little heavier on, say, the art this time or on, you know, the social studies because it was a little light in that area last time? You could. Uh, this is Wes now. Okay. Um, what, and I don't, I don't know if one of us already mentioned this, but at the start of every project, we have the students kind of uh, – designate which standards they're going to work towards uh, show, either showing mastery of or just practicing to get, to get better at. Mm -hmm. And um, so unlike most uh, classrooms where, you know, the teacher is drawing up the lesson plans based on standards that are some invisible thing under lock and key that students don't even know exist, mm -hmm. yep. uh, we, we actually share PDF files of all three of our subject area standards to the students so they have them all semester long. So they're constantly aware of the expectations from each of us and what they're supposed to be mastering. With that being said, we know it's unrealistic to visit each standard in any class, in any subject, equal, equally right. throughout the year. Um, somebody once did an inventory of Pennsylvania's uh, Department of Ed standards uh, K through 12, and came up with a number like 23 years. It w it would take an average student to devote, yeah, to devote <laughs> yeah. an equal amount of time to, you know, and we're given 13. Right. So we basically need double the time. So what we encourage the kids to do is not ignore certain standards, but to take a look at the standards and look at the ones that challenge them the most, mm -hmm. ones, that, ones that they know um, they've either missed or um, just had, had never been exposed to before, whether they struggle with them or they, they're just brand new, and, and we encourage them to, to focus on those standards. And back to what your question asked, then yes, w once you've shown us that you can include figurative language in a, a narrative piece or identify the main idea in a work of nonfiction, well, how about we just put that to the side for the next project and try something else that challenges you a bit more. Got it. Got it. With the reason I'm getting so nitty gritty about the standards is I'm trying to think about what the, what the naysayers are going to be responding with in their heads. I'm thinking if I'm a social studies teacher, probably in particular with social studies, they, there's a list of things that I need to tick off my box throughout the year to make sure I cover, 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 cover. And so 
to try to shift that person's thinking to even open up to a possibility of a program like this, there's got to be some, I guess, reassurance that those things will still be addressed. It's just that maybe not perfectly equally, but they will all be touched on and practiced and addressed. And the fact that you're giving the students ownership of that, it's really taking it to a completely different level because they have a better understanding of why they're doing things and, and they've got more accountability with themselves. Another thing it's probably important to mention, Jen, is that when the students arrive on a daily basis and we have that family meeting in the morning, that's the time mm -hmm. where we, we advertise what mini lessons we're teaching that day. So it's entirely possible that Greg would be teaching, you know, a lesson about this particular conflict or or this issue in current events or even something from the 19th century. So there, there are still um, traditional looking lessons but they're optional. It's kind of like going to uh, an education conference and having that smorgasbord of possibilities yeah. to choose from. And so Mr. Grandy might be offering an art lesson at the same time that I'm offering you know, something in English and the students get to pick and choose which one is more beneficial to them in their project at that point in time. Uh, knowing that we can turn around and offer the same lesson the next day and they can switch and go to the other one if need be. So that's okay. I want to get into that because I forgot all about the mini lessons and I want to do like a typical day. Mm -hmm. So let, I'm going to just wrap up the, the whole piece of sort of the curriculum and the how you're assessing everything. And then we'll just start a wa walking through when you actually do these sort of assessments. This is that sort of like defense of the project where they're sitting down and that's how they're going to get their their grade mm -hmm. is, is sitting down and doing kind of a, a, a conference with with you guys. Mm -hmm. And this is when you kind of go through and make sure, and they'd explain to you how they met the standards. And is that also when you go through the thinking skills and the soft skills? Well, they would have identified those earlier in the project. So they, they're given a pretty much a blank slate of a rubric. Okay. And then they identify which thinking skills they're focusing on. And as Greg mentioned, last year we had eight soft skills to choose from, but this year we kind of assigned these two communication mm -hmm. and time management so that's always part of the rubric as well and with with those two pieces the soft skills we simply look back to our our uh, you know our clipboards we we keep a daily tally of how often students are meeting with us uh, whether that's in our mini lessons or those one-on-one -on -one lessons that they schedule with us we're looking at how how consistent they are with scheduling their days because they use this online program where they actually map out each of their, their days in Apollo, four hours worth uh, in, in half an hour increments, letting us know where they're going to be and what they're going to be doing because um, they don't have to stay in one of our classrooms. There's uh, a wide open space for them. to. It's called the student work area where they can work, and they can also go to our library or um, sit at one of the tables that's around our school. And, you know, in extreme situations, they might even leave the school to go uh, interview somebody in the community or to go shadow somebody in a certain career. And so we we really try to push them beyond that, that normal setting. And that all comes out in their reflective piece at the end, too, when we sit down to evaluate what they've done. So I'm wondering if they, they're basically evaluating themselves and you're and you're working with them to say, how, how did I do during this project on 
my communication skills. How well did I do on time management? Exactly. And then, and then they're looking also at reasoning, perspective, contextualization, and synthesis. Mm -hmm. And they're identifying one of those skills for each of us. So they might pick reasoning for my English portion of their project, Mm. contextualization for Greg and social studies. And then maybe they'll go back and repeat reasoning for art. Uh, We encourage them to have a variety. Um, We don't want them to have the same skill for all three subjects on any given project. But there are times when it's just more beneficial to have to double up. Got it. Uh, but most times, it's most times it's three different skills. Okay. Okay. But, but, yeah, but the idea is that they choose one skill for each one of our subjects for each different project. So eventually, they'll go through all four of the skills you. for each one of our subjects through the course of the four projects. Okay. So let's let's talk a little bit about just the daily logistics. What does it look like when they when they show up for for the Apollo School of that day? Um, basically around 7.45, we kind of corral them together into Greg's room and we call that family time where that, that meeting can last anywhere from five to 10 minutes, uh, just like a little bit of housekeeping things we might have to take care of to we've had full on one hour to two hour discussions where they're really, they're really generating the conversation and driving the the topic about their own education and, and they're really meaningful conversations. So those can be completely organic in, in that sense and, and really rewarding. And, and that's another thing I would, I would claim to say I've never had that experience really in a traditional setting. Um, so that, but if in a traditional day, uh, an average day, they would leave about eight o'clock and then they would schedule their day and then really from that point in time, scheduling their day also includes them scheduling us. So we have a, an option on our site where through some software that the students will actually click on our schedule, kind of like a doctor's office, and see where we're available. And depending on what suits them and what's available or what's open on our end, they can schedule time with us, one-on-one time, small group time whatever that is. So those, those are like 10 minute increments. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can, as a student say, you know what, I need to see Mr. Ward and he right away. So I'm going to go on his schedule and I'm going to schedule him at eight ten. And I don't need to speak to Mr. Wimmer at all today. Or if I do, I'm going to mm-hmm. speak to him later. Um, and maybe Mr. Grandy, I'll speak to him around 11. So they really plan their day fully and they're not which is different because they're not waiting for us. Um, we're kind of there for them. And, and, you know, and I think that's one of the things that they really appreciate. A lot of the times when you're doing these really in-depth projects where sometimes they just don't know where they're going, you know, they're kind of stuck. And, and if we're having conversations with students, they don't want to interrupt. And so they kind of sit around and wait. And we've all had that. And that waiting yeah. time is just a killer. It, yes. just, it just kills momentum. This way they know, like, okay, I have a 10 o'clock appointment so I can work on all these other things. And at 10 o'clock, I know I definitely get to see Mr. Wimmer at that time, and I'll get my question answered. So we've tried to kind of implement these systems in place that, you know, they can kind of be as productive as possible in that day and also plan their mini lessons if they want to attend a mini lesson. If they have – sometimes we have students that are interviewing people outside of the community, not unlike what we're doing with a Skype session – um, so they have to plan all that, and, and that really comes back to their time management piece at the end, and, and they'll, they'll share that with us, and, and along with our data, 
about how many times they schedule us, that's when we really talk to them about whether their time management actually you know, imp- improved the project or maybe it kind of held it back from being totally successful. And these many lessons that you all offer, this is probably the piece that most resembles traditional teaching. You're just straight up delivering a lesson on some aspect of your content? Yes, and, and it, but here's where it might not be traditional. Um, not only the fact that it's not op- it's optional, mm-hmm. they, they can choose not to attend if it's not relevant to their project, mm-hmm. but we also let, let it open to, for them to actually request many lessons on topics that we wouldn't necessarily generate. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Imagine that, students requesting that you yeah. teach about something. So they might say, can you come up, can you teach us about, uh, in our, they might, I had one, uh, can you teach us a lesson about Frida Kahlo and women painters that are artists that were inspired by her? I said, yeah, just give me um, two or three days to put that together and then I'll have that lesson for you. So it, it's really about customizing and personalizing the learning for them. Um, mm-hmm. And that, that's why it's, it makes it such a unique program. Yeah. Do you ever have students teach them any lessons? Uh, yeah, actually, we we have we started to do that. Greg, actually, you could talk about that, the skill swap we started to do as well. Yeah, so one of the things we we really value is that every student usually has something that they can add to the group. And so we have some students that are extremely good at technology, some who um, are good at um, building an online presence. And so... Um, we thought, why not have those students share their abilities and talents with one another? And so um, we built this idea of the skill swap um, that you you hear in more like grown-up settings. Uh, But this was an opportunity. And so we had one of our students share, um, she has an Etsy store. And so she talked about how she built her Etsy store and how she branded herself on social media and so it was a really um, unique perspective that a student would be sharing her personal business um, with everyone else but um, it reinforced some of the soft skills that we work on obviously communication is big and uh, this student had developed um, into a young lady who was extremely comfortable at, at putting herself out there and so you know anytime that we can celebrate the abilities of our students and have them share that with each other was, um, or we saw as as something that could be valuable. That's fantastic. When you got this started, you know, looking back over the the time that you've done this program, what, what can you see as mistakes that you made and, you know, what lessons have you learned since getting it started? I think we uh, overestimated the amount of work students were able to do. They'd done school a certain way for most of their lives and then we we spring upon them with this project-based idea in which we're also incorporating these mini lessons and these one-on-one meetings and we want them to focus on soft skills that uh, they really hadn't directly been taught or expected to do perhaps since like early elementary years Um, and then on top of that we have these assessments where they would take basically quizzes in each of our content areas. And we based those quizzes not just on our content, but on thinking skills. And during the pilot program, that first year, each of us was was assigning eight of those assessments, one per eight of our thinking skills. And so for one marking period, that's one half of the semester, students were having to complete 
24 assessments on top of two projects that lasted about three and a half to four weeks each. And the students were exhausted. And many of them, um, whether it was by choice or necessity, waited until the last week or so to try to complete all of these assessments. Hmm. And as you can as you can imagine, they uh, weren't as successful as, as they wanted to be. And we owned, you know, a lot of that ourselves. We, we took that as our own fault. But um, one of the aspects of the course that we really wanted to drive home to them was the opportunity to redo. Um, in, in life, we're able to redo a lot of the tests that, that we're put through or that we are given. Um, but in school, it's like this once-and-done opportunity. Mm -hmm. So we, we wanted to reinforce that through their projects and assessments that if they didn't do as well as they wanted to the first time, they could always rework it or redo it and submit it again for review. But we kind of uh, sacrificed that when we had so many assignments for them to complete in such a short amount of time because, again, we underestimated what they were capable of. So this year, we cut it back for the second time around. We cut it back instead of eight thinking skills with eight assessments for each of us. We did it. We did four. Now, we still have that those students, as you will in even a traditional class, that procrastinate. And when you give them a deadline, that means, okay, that's the day that I'm going to do it. <laughs> right. not, not do it by, but that's, that's the day or at least the night before I'm going to sit down to do it. So we still have that. Um, but we also have students who start working on those the first week and chip away at them little by little. Would you say that um, just in general, the outcomes have been what you'd hope they would be? Are you, are you still feeling pretty excited that this is like, I don't know, this sort of feels like the way school should be. So have you gotten the results that you thought you were going to be getting? Um, I'll say personally, the relationship piece is really amazing. Um, I mean, not only do I feel... Um, I think, I think working with two other people that you can appreciate their input, um, which, which a lot of times, you know, we vote on specific things as a democracy. And, you know, you, as a, when there's three people, you don't always win. Um, and I think that's one of the things that I've learned. Uh, maybe my idea is not the best idea. Um, it might, you know, to me in my classroom, maybe it is. But when you're really working with a group, uh, it's really pushed me in that sense uh, as an educator. But I think... Outside of the, the relationships with the, with the learners is really where it's grown. I mean, we've had some of these young adults have come up to us and just, I mean, flattered us um, and, and with, with praise that I can't even tell you things I've never even thought that I would hear, things about how they would be scared to death to come to school on Sunday night um, from anxiety huh. um, and, and how they love coming to school now. And they never have had conversations with adults or their teachers before, more than just, you know, like, here's your homework, here's your test. And, you know, th we have real conversations with these with these people. I mean, these are people. And yeah. uh, I think that those types of relationships that you build um, are amazing. I think that the projects, I tell people all the time, I, I try my hardest when I'm teaching traditional classes to plan really interesting lessons and projects for the kids to do. Um, but I can't plan these projects. I could never plan a bioethics project for the whole class. I could never plan, you know, so, so I couldn't even hit all the standards that I wanted to hit. This way, I, I like, uh, I track all the standards that the kids hit. 
And as a class, they, they hit more standards as a class than I would never than I would ever have them hit if I was direct directing every single lesson. Right. Um, and I and I think that what I've learned from all this is is kind of the let go of some of the things that we were, you know, kind of geared and taught to do as educators going through teacher school. And um, so, you know, it, it's a really great feeling. I think uh, it, and I think it can get better. I don't know how. I, I mean, I'm sure there, there's more, but uh, more people affecting more lives in a positive right, way. I think right. we're all looking for that. So. I have one more question, uh, actually, for Wes, because my background is in English language arts. And uh, one of our biggest problems, right, is paper load and grading mm-hmm. and giving students feedback on their writing. And I'm curious how that has changed for you with the Apollo program. Is it is it a little bit less of a workload? Um, it's it's less as far as qu- quantity goes, mm-hmm. um, but it, it doesn't. It doesn't seem like it takes me any less time. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, I, I had a student, or we had a student, who was doing a project that was based around this armor, uh, this body armor um, from like the 13th or 14th century, this medieval armor. Um, and, I, and I'm probably even mislabeling that, Greg, but um, he wrote a, a poem that coincided with this armor because through talking with him, and Jim just touched upon how um, we have the the great fortune of sitting down with these kids sometimes for 20 minutes one-on-one mm. at a time and, and really picking their brain about their project. And I, I really wanted to push this student who, who had this fascination with body armor um, about why, why he was exploring this topic. Nobody had assigned this to him, why he was doing this. And and he, it, it came out that, you know, when he was younger, a few years ago, he lost his mom in a car accident. And ever since then, he's worn this hat that she had given him. And he even has permission to wear that hat around school. And in a sense, that's his armor. Hmm. And so he, he was writing a poem about this hat and this, and, and really um, how it's protecting whatever is left of his childhood because he feels like those years were taken from him. And so he wrote this poem, um, and it was good, but I, there were some things I needed to show him with some figurative language and some different sound devices he could incorporate it to make it sound more poetic. And so he went back to the drawing board and, and did it again, and then we met again and sat down and talked about some more changes he could make. And long story short, a week and a half later, he had written like eight versions of this poem. Wow. Um, so in a, in a traditional class, I may have read that poem twice, right. you know, before a final draft, but with this, I really had the opportunity to sit down and work with him, um, in, in all, probably like an hour yeah. over the course of a week and a half, just one-on-one instruction on how to, to make this better. So yes, my, my paper workload might seem smaller, but my, my time uh, working with the students is not right, that. but it sounds much more ideal because you're actually oh. you're doing what all English teachers want to be able to do, which is yeah. give them that feedback and give them that time, and you have that now. Yeah, exactly. Well, I'm just so excited to share this with teachers. I think I, I do feel that we've sort of just just gotten to the very surface of it. So mm-hmm. I'm going to probably get in touch with you to see if maybe I can get some documents, maybe get a look at the rubric that you use and maybe link to a couple of student projects that people could see. 
All right. Um, we, we do have um, that, that Weebly site will showcase some of those projects that we mentioned earlier. Yes. Let's give people the URL for that. That is theapolloschool.weebly.com. Good deal. And I'll make sure that I provide a link to that also on the website. Uh, well, thank you so much for giving me all this time at the end of a yeah, long yeah. school day. I appreciate it so much. Yeah, no problem. Thank you, Joe. I'd like to thank Wes and Greg and Jim for giving me their time and sharing their program with us. For links to all the resources mentioned in this episode, visit culturepedagogy.com slash pod and click on episode 62. To get weekly updates on all my newest blog posts, podcast episodes, and products, sign up for my mailing list at cultofpedagogy.com slash subscribe. Thanks so much for listening and have a great day. This podcast is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. To learn more, visit edupodcastnetwork.com.